Please be seated. This is a fantastic story, but it is also a very challenging one. A man, we are told, was plagued by many demons, a man driven so far out of his mind that he lived on the very fringes of society, a man who experiences a miraculous transformation and has an unexpected encounter with Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Now, what are we supposed to do with this story? One reason I think that this story is such a challenge for us is that it takes place in a world that seems so very different from our own. We don't hear much talk these days about demon possession, unless maybe we're talking about Hollywood movies or something like that. Ours is a very different world, a very different age, so much so that it can be hard for us to know what to do with a story like this. The Lutheran biblical scholar Rudolf Bultmann once famously observed that the discoveries of modern science have made it difficult for us to know what to do with biblical stories about demonic possession. Bultmann wrote, we cannot use electrical lights and wireless radio and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern science and medical discoveries and at the same time, believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Now, Boltman wrote that passage in 1941, and technology hasn't exactly stopped developing since that time, so we may be even more inclined than Boltman was to follow that line of thinking. Now, Boltman, to be fair, his primary concern was to demonstrate the abiding relevance of Christian faith in the modern world. And in order to do that, Boltmann believed that we had to downplay or even reject those elements of the faith that seemed inconsistent with a modern worldview. The modern world thinks in terms of things like science and technology and democracy. The modern world does not think in terms of things like demons and spirits and miracles. So demons and spirits and miracles have to go, or they at least have to be reinterpreted demythologized. Now, you may be thinking that what I'm about to say is that Boltmann was a heretic and we should continue to believe everything the New Testament says about demons and spirits and miracles, but I'm not going to say that. The reason I am not going to say that is not because there isn't an interesting and worthwhile discussion for us to have about that issue. The reason I am not going to say that is because there is something even more important at stake in this story than the question of the existence of demons and the reality of miracles. In other words, we run the risk of misreading this story if we approach it expecting that the primary thing it has to teach us has to do with the existence or the non-existence of demons. Reading this story in that way leads to misunderstanding. The problem that the story gives to us has less to do with knowledge and more to do with something else. This is a story about power. When the Gerasene man confronts Jesus on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, he is not there to have an academic discussion about the existence of demons or the reality of the supernatural. Jesus isn't even out of the boat and already this guy is in his face. It is a struggle from the word go. 
This is a story about competing powers. And if this is a story about powers, what does it tell us? What happens? First and foremost, we learn that the power of the God of Israel is greater than any other power, earthly or spiritual. Where does the story take place? We are not in Israel any longer. We are in the country of the Gerasenes, opposite Galilee. This is Gentile territory. This is pagan territory. These are not the people to whom Jesus had been sent. Different people, different place, different gods, different rules. But despite those differences, the power of the God of Israel is shown to be greater than the power of the local gods. There is a struggle here. The first time Jesus tells the demons to come out of the man, it only makes them angry. Jesus has to back up, try again. What exactly are we dealing with here? What is your name? Legion. How many is that? At the time, the most powerful military force in the Western world was the Roman army, and a Roman legion could include anywhere between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So it's Jesus against something like 4,500 demons. And despite the apparent odds, the outcome is never really in doubt. The power of the God of Israel is shown to be greater even than the power of thousands of malevolent spiritual forces. The sovereignty of the God of Israel extends even beyond the borders of Israel. Indeed, even beyond the borders of this world. That's the first thing that this story tells us. There's something else as well. The power of the God of Israel is manifest in the person of Jesus. In fact, we have to go even farther than that. Jesus himself is the incarnate power of God. It's not just that Jesus wields the power of God. He is himself that power. He speaks, and on his authority, it happens. Here's another way of saying that same thing. In the beginning was the power of God. And that power was with God, and that power was God. All things came into being through that power. And what has come into being through the power of God is light and life. And in this story, we see that power become flesh and live among us. Now that should sound familiar. Where am I getting that? The first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the incarnate Word, is also the incarnate power of God. Something else we see in this story. Power, especially God's power, is not always welcome. The people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave. Now that's interesting, and that is noteworthy, because what ordinarily happens in the Gospels when Jesus performs a miracle or heals someone is that people start coming out of the woodwork to be saved. And sometimes it gets so bad that Jesus can't even go to a particular town or a particular region for fear that he'll be recognized and the crowds will mob him. 
Time and again in the Gospels, Jesus finds himself caught up in the hysteria of the crowds when they realize what he can do for them. Not this time. This time there is only fear. And why would you suppose that is? I suspect it has everything to do with what the people must have concluded about Jesus based on his ability to deliver the man possessed by demons. Nobody had been able to heal this man. They couldn't even control him. In Mark's gospel, the man is described as having been so violent that every time the people tried to control him by binding him with chains, he broke the chains and wrenched apart his shackles. No one, said Mark, had the strength to subdue him. And now here comes this Jewish rabbi from across the pond, and he overcomes this raging, incoherent violence simply by speaking. What kind of a person can do that? What kind of power must he have? In the eyes of the Gerasenes, Jesus looks like more of a threat than the threat that had been posed by the man possessed by demons. The people were not ready for an encounter with that kind of power. Now, there's maybe one final very important lesson that this story has for us. The power of God is non-coercive. Now, that may sound a little unusual because it looks like Jesus behaves in a very coercive manner with the demons inhabiting this man. But in fact, Jesus acts in a way that is designed to bring about the maximum available freedom for everyone, even the demons. He delivers the man from bondage. He gives the demons permission to destroy themselves, which they promptly do. And he respects the wishes of those who ask him to leave. He could have done whatever he wanted, but he acted in a way that was designed to leave as much freedom as possible available for everyone. So these, I think, are the fundamental lessons that this story has for us. The power of the God of Israel holds sway over all things. The power of the God of Israel is manifest in the person of Jesus. The power of God is not always something that we welcome or embrace. And the power of God is non-coercive. Any other discussion we may want to have about this story needs to begin there. That, I think, gives us more than enough to chew on. Do we live our lives in light of the power and the sovereignty of God? Do we believe that the power of God holds sway over all things? And if we say that we do, do we then act in ways that are consistent with that belief? Trusting in the sovereignty of the power of God has enormous implications for how we conduct our day-to-day -day lives. Do we trust that the power of God will sustain us in the midst of of the challenges of life, both the really big challenges and the not so big but nonetheless aggravating challenges of our day-to-day -day mundane affairs? Are we ready and welcome to embrace the power of God or do we fear it? Do we fear the kind of transformation that we know the power of God is capable of accomplishing? When Jesus comes to us with the power of deliverance, do we fall at his feet? 
Or do we ask him politely to leave? Do we sometimes feel that God is getting just a little too close for comfort? We liked you better when you were on that side of the lake. And finally, what are we doing with the freedom that God gives to us? Are we using that freedom, are we using his non-coercive stance to reject his power? Are we using the freedom that God gives to us as an opportunity to destroy ourselves just the way the demons did? Or do we find ourselves longing to stay with Jesus the way that the Gerasene man did after he had been delivered? He begged Jesus that he might be allowed to go with him. And then he was still obedient even after Jesus denied his request. No, you can't come, but stay here and tell people what God has done for you. And he does. He goes away proclaiming throughout the city how much God had done for him. Whether we like it or not, our lives are governed by power, spiritual power. And today's gospel gives us a chance to reflect on our experience of the transformative power of God given to us in Jesus and gives us a chance to reflect on our response to that gift. If you find yourself in bondage, be assured that Jesus is the one who can deliver you. If you are frightened by the thought of an encounter with the power of God and you are not quite sure you want Jesus around, be assured his desire is to act in a way that makes as much room as possible for you to live a life that is free. And if you find that your life has been changed by an encounter with the living God, then go and declare how much God has done for you. To the honor and glory of his name, amen.